This July 4th marks 242 years since our nation declared its independence from Great Britain in the midst of the Revolutionary War. George Washington, or as Director Cardillo addresses him, NGA's employee number one, leveraged land surveying, cartography, and geography skills to lead the American military to victory over Britain in 1783. Throughout the course of the war, these skills were blended together to make maps to aid the Continental Army. These maps were especially critical in gaining an advantage in battle. Today, we're talking with Dr. Joe Stoltz, the digital historian at the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon. He offered insight into how George Washington's expertise in land surveying impacted his military service and ultimately laid the foundation for GeoInt during the American Revolution. My name is Joe Stoltz. I am the digital historian here at the Washington Library, uh, which is um, the best way we've sort of come to explain it is I'm kind of like the chief geek and chief nerd at the same time. Um, so I'm a liberal arts major. That's what all three of my degrees are in. I got my PhD in history, was formerly trained at TCU, go Horned Frogs, but uh, I, I happen to do enough other things with uh, computers and, and, and mapping and digital presentations of history that somebody thought it'd be a good idea to slap digital on the front because it's great for branding for liberal arts majors to get jobs. Uh, so my chief role here at the library uh, and at Mount Vernon is I'm one, uh, the on-staff military historian um, when those questions come up. And then two, um, I, I do things like manage our digital encyclopedia and other sort of public history projects that we put on our website. Great. Well, we're interested in talking about particularly mapping, but George Washington's surveying mm -hmm. history and um, and also you know what that tradecraft was like at the time and how it might have been used in military battle um, and like I said you know our our agency director likes to call George Washington employee number one because <laughs> of his surveying background um, so how might he have gotten into that field um, you know what do you think his motivation for that would have been and what would it have been like to be a surveyor at the time? Yeah, so Washington's background, um, you know, I think we, in the 21st century, you know, you think of the Marble Man that has, you know, monuments all over the place, and I think every state in the Union has something named after him in pretty much every municipality. Um, but when Washington's growing up, he is the third-born son. Uh, he's, he's got two older half-brothers who have both been sent to England, right? Virginia is a patriarchal society. Uh, the inheritance laws do not work uh, in, in, in the 18th century the way they do now. So Washington, or George Washington, um, is not really expecting to get some sort of huge inheritance uh, or even an evenly shared inheritance, right? As the third-born son, he's going to need to find some sort of practical mm -hmm. way for himself. You know, he's, he's by no means going to, you know, come in to, to his adulthood poor, but he is not like say Thomas Jefferson going to just be gifted a large scale plantation with access to like a huge line of credit. Like Washington needs, George Washington's going to need to find some sort of practical mm -hmm. career for himself. Um, he's eventually going to settle on surveying uh, because for to, he originally wants to go into the Navy. His mom's not so enthused about the idea of him being away for 
long periods of time. Uh, and, and so that sort of falls through. Uh, you know, so if mom's going to want me close to home, but I also want to get away for a while, uh, surveying could be a good fit. You know, the, Virginia in this time period uh, is, is really in many ways like the sort of heavily settled portion of Virginia is still just sort of the tidewater area, you know, pretty much everything up to the fall line. And so, you know, really anything in the Shenandoah Valley is for, you know, white settler, white colonists in, in the tidewater is sort of only fairly recently discovered country and sort of pretty wilderness and, uh, uh, and they, they don't really know right what's for there. Surveying. Yeah, right for <laughs> serving, right? Because, because on the one hand, someone has been told, like say Lord Fairfax, who's, you know, going to be really important to our story here in a minute and, and, uh, you know, his home was at Fort Belvoir mm -hmm. or his home was at Belvoir Plantation, which yeah. is where Fort Belvoir gets his name, right? He, his land grant from, uh, the King of England is all the way up to the Appalachian Mountains. Well, that's great, but like what's actually there? And if he's going to start to subdivide that to sell it to make money off of it, somebody actually needs to go out there, put eyes on that land, and start to map what's actually theirs. Because if it's not, if it hasn't been mapped, mm -hmm. does it really exist? And and for colonial Virginia, that that's a big question. Um, so the advantage with being a surveyor is one. It's steady. It's 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 secure work, right? Like you know, there's going to keep needing to be demand for it. But then two, because you're going to be one of the first people to actually go out there and put eyes on this, on this, you know, sort of quote unquote, I'm going to heavily air quote, you know, all of this with like new undiscovered land, right? Because there's definitely people on it. Yeah. But uh, for the people that are now looking at buying it, right? Those those white Virginians. Um, the great thing for Washington, the great thing for any surveyor, since you're one of the first people to actually go out and physically put eyes on it, that's, that's part of the society that is access to sort of, they're gonna you know, have their legal ownership, right? You also know where the best parts are. Mm -hmm. So you, in a way, will sort of have first pick when this comes up for sale, uh, whenever who you know, decides to start to sell it, you already know what the best parts mm -hmm. are and can be in a position to sort of take advantage of those right away and sort of, you know, Think of like having sort of first access to a you know a, an IPO you know an initial trade offering um, for a stock. Um, so Washington, uh, the thing is also because he is uh, not so it's sort of two things right. He's he's the third born son, so he's not, there's not a lot of investment being put into him in the first place. And then his father dies uh, when he's still a teenager. Uh, so any chance that Washington even would have gone to college at William and Mary. Uh, which it sounds weird when I say like William and Mary is like a backup school, but Washington's two older brothers went to went to college in England. Uh, Washington would, have, if he was going to go to college at all, would have had to slum it at William and Mary. Um, so, but but his father dies, and so that's just not going to happen. Like there's just not money for it. Um, so he is uh, through his older brother uh, Lawrence, sort of taken in by the Fairfax family, uh, and is given access to the Fairfax Library. Uh, at Belvoir. And we know for a fact one of the books that he read when he was there was The Art of Surveying. A lot of what Washington did throughout his life was um, he was self-taught in a lot of respects. Uh, you know, I think the biggest advantage, uh, I'll do my plug for liberal arts education here, you know, the biggest advantage that you know, I think Washington got from the Fairfax family was, was a true liberal arts education in the sense of learning how to learn. Mm -hmm. So that anything he would then go on to try and take on as a profession, he could always he, he had sort of a structured way that he knew to, to educate himself, and that's what he does with um, surveying. He's never sort of formally trained, 
Um, he spends a lot of time doing it, you know, reading More over in books. Job training as well. Yeah, he actually in, in 1758, 1748, sorry, will actually go on a surveying expedition with a portion of the Fairfax family uh, when they're going out to the Shenandoah to map some of their lands. And so he's there and his assistant. And so he's read about it in theory. Now he's seeing it in practice. Mm -hmm. And in 1749, he'll actually get his surveying, uh, you know, like official certificate um, from William and Mary. So they, they can sort of claim him as an alum, at least for like a certificate program. Um, so good for them. And then he was hired as an actual surveyor for, was it the county of Culpeper? Yeah, so he's, he's Culpeper County, briefly, uh, Culpeper County's uh, official surveyor. Um, he's less interested in that one because, again, he really wants to be working out west. Where was there's that gonna be common, though, to for counties to have... A surveyor on staff like that? Yeah, because because even once it's already been, sur you know, the land is always getting partitioned. Um, so there's always got to, you know, it's always coming up in legal disputes. Mm -hmm. And so most most counties would keep some sort of surveyor on staff to, to help resolve um, previous disputes or land disputes. Um, but again, what Washington really wants to be is sort of do, doing, you know, those ones out west. And so he'll eventually switch over to doing more stuff in Frederick County. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he'll actually... Um, sort of get out of being a professional surveyor after he starts to accumulate some money for himself and starts to buy land. And he'll, he'll really start to focus on doing the surveying for his own properties. Um, yeah. And then moving forward to his military career, I mean, how do you think that skill set or that experience as a surveyor would have influenced his time in the military? Uh, it's a great question. You know, I think... To some extent, it's why he lands the first military job he does, right? Because he is one of the only people among sort of the Virginia gentry leadership, you know, and he's on the very low end of it at this point, right? But he's still part of it. Um, because he's one of the only people that's actually sort of been out that way, that's why he gets uh, in, in 1753, uh, Governor Dinwiddie will actually ask him to go deliver a message to the French out in the Ohio Valley who have been encroaching onto what Virginia is going to claim is part of their territory and Washington's supposed to go deliver a note uh, and kindly ask the French to leave, who are of course going to say no. Um, but they need to officially make the ask, right? And so Washington is sent out to go do this. The French predictably say no. Washington makes it back. Well, at that point, you're going to send some, Dinwiddie wants to send some sort of military expedition to try and convince the French to leave. And well, now you have this young Virginia gentleman that has been again one of the only people to go that far, um, that way. That is is someone that Dinwiddie can you know sort of socially give a, a, a high-ranking military command to. Um, and Washington is is given um, is executive officer of the Virginia Regiment, uh, which are which are um, provincial soldiers, but they're full time, right? So it's it's you know think like a National Guard unit that's actually been activated into sort of full time service would be sort of equivalent to what the Virginia Regiment was, um, and he's sort of sent as one of the lead elements out to the Ohio Valley because, again, he's one of the few people that has been out there to see it. Um, and so that definitely, uh, his serving background sort of gives him the in to get that military commission that um, would have been fairly desirous in, in this period of Virginia because military service could be a way to advance yourself within you know, the greater British colonial and British Imperial society. If you if you have success now, of course, you know we all know that uh, Washington will not have success that first military trip out to the Ohio Valley. Uh, I think it's also where he learned his first 
uh, lessons in branding because you really should not name something Fort Necessity. Uh, it's sort of a tell to your men that the situation maybe isn't as good as they might like it to be. Um, and so he'll, you know, that will, will not go well for him, and he comes back. But I think his, his surveying trips out to um, the Shenandoah especially become really important after um, there's going to be sort of a follow-on expedition the next year uh, where this guy, Edward Braddock, a British officer, is going to come, British general is going to come over. It's not going to go well for him. That's something called Braddock's defeat, which tells you about how well as it goes. Um, and at that point, that's when the British decide, well, we're... we're we want to kick the French out of the Ohio Valley, but we're not going to go through, through the Virginia. Let's, let's just go through Canada. And so the British will actually pull a lot of their forces from Virginia, leaving the Virginians to themselves to defend Virginia, right? And mm -hmm. at this point, like when we say Virginia, we mean like West Virginia as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so the British have been there just long enough to make all the Native Americans in the Ohio Valley mad. And then they leave, and now it's up to the Virginians to try and figure out some sort of way to defend Virginia with, you know, sort of a 450-mile frontier to have to cover. Yeah. And Washington, uh, at only 23 years old, is now the senior most and most experienced, and again, use air quotes there, yeah. military officer in the colony. And so he's put in charge of figuring out how to do the defense of all of Western Virginia and sort of defend the Shenandoah lengthwise, which is, you know, not the way you want to have to right. do this. Uh, and so he will help set up a series of forts. And I think, you know, I, I, I would argue, you know, his surveying background and his, and his familiarity with topography and, and these surveying expeditions out there um, really informed and, and gave him, um, you know, some insight into sort of how to set up um, those fortifications and how to sort of fill in the gaps with patrols and stuff. And, you know, unfortunately, we don't have, um, there are no surviving maps of where even some of these forts were. Um, we know sort of roughly where they would have been, but I mean, there there would have had to have been yeah. some some map that would have had all these forts marked on it. And I you know can all but guarantee Washington spent a lot of time poring over uh, this map. And he was he could be a very um, meticulous mm -hmm. person. Uh, I don't think he's somebody you really would have wanted to work for because he, he would have been very exacting. Um, and I have no doubt that like each of they probably were like a map of each of those forts. He's probably always wanting, yeah. you know, updates and like it's been fixed. And I, I really want you to, you know, yeah. do that. And yeah. Well, what kind of capabilities would his army have had as far as surveying skills, map making, compared to say the French? Yeah, you know, it's it not much. Um, you know, it's it's part of part of the issue here, right? That it is going to eventually, um, and I think it's. We get a lot of looks when we say this sometimes, but radicalize George Washington, right? Like he, he is a member of the British gentry, British imperial gentry, and then he will at some point decide, nope, being this new thing called American sound good, right? At some point, George Washington radicalizes against his government. And part of uh, you know, why that is is because of how the British imperial strict system was structured. And in the British imperial system, the colonists serve a certain function, and that function is to support the metropole, to support England, not not even Britain, support England. Uh, and so, you know, when when the the way the military was structured in the colonies, like, like there's yes, there's lots of times that provincial troops are called into service, and and there's there's many great um, you know paintings and, and and all sorts of drawings and stuff you see of 
colonial soldiers very ruggedly at, at drill musters and everything with their muskets and everything, right? But that's not all there is to fighting a war. It's, it's not just running around with guns, shooting at people. There has to be some level of organization. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that the colonists... And strategy. And strategy, right? And that's the thing that the colonists were generally bad at, but were not necessarily bad at, but they, they, they didn't have to be good at, right? Because there was always some sort of larger British imperial functionary that could come in and do it, right? Like, the, the Americans don't need to worry about how to organize an army of five, six, seven, ten, twenty thousand soldiers because they weren't in charge of it anyway, right? Like, if, if the army gets that big, the British are going to send somebody over. They're going to they're going to send a general over. They're going to send aides to camp. They're going to send cartographers. They're going to send engineers. They're going to send all those sort of really highly educated professional um, uh, really professional officers that the colonists just don't need, right? They just need to produce infantry. They just need to produce people that can shoot guns. Um, and so, you know, flash forward to 1775 when, you know, Second Continental Congress has decided to establish this thing called the Continental Army because four separate colonial armies have decided to attack the British outside of Boston. And yes, I did say that's not at the, it's four separate armies because technically speaking, that force outside of Boston is the independent armies of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New Hampshire. Um, they, they, they don't even actually all, yeah, they don't even actually all, yeah. they don't even report to each other, right? So when Congress decides to take these into service and establish this new thing called a Continental Army and they're looking around going, well, who is the most experienced person Right, on the one hand, George Washington has only ever been a colonel in continental service, which is the same thing as guys like Israel Putnam and, and other New England leaders that are, are quite successful. But the advantage Washington had in his background that those other ones didn't is that he had had to do things like organize the defense of an entire frontier, right? Guys like Israel Putnam had also been colonels of regiments mm -hmm. during the French and Indian War, but all they, in a, you know, and this isn't to disparage it, but all they ever had to do was be a part of a larger formation. Whereas Washington's time, there is a period of a few years where he is left in charge to have to figure it out himself. And so he's having to figure out the logistical side. He's having to figure out the, the cartographic side, figure out the engineering side for how do you build these forts, where do you site them. Um, and so all of that stuff that you didn't have a whole lot of people, and that's not to say Washington was necessarily good at it, it's just to say he was one of the only ones with anything approaching it. So right. sort of tallest building in Wichita uh, thing here. Sorry to our listeners in, in, uh, in Wichita. Um, but so, you know, that, that he's, he's sort of the most qualified, which is, you know, at this point a very low bar to have to yeah. attain. And it's just sort of lucky for the, the colonial cause that it, he actually happened to not be horrible at it mm -hmm. as well. You mentioned earlier um, with the French and mm -hmm. their capabilities and what they kind of brought over here. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that, you know, e even with all the, the, the sort of skill that Washington brings to sort of the higher level command of the Continental Army, the problem is he's still only one person. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, a, it's a shortcoming the Continental Army will face throughout the entire war is is that there and it's you know it's one of the things that um, you know generally when Washington loses a battle um, it's because he sort of put too much faith in a subordinate commander right like you probably should have gone and double checked what that person was doing and not just assumed that 
Trust they were actually comp yeah trust but verify right <laughs> don't you just, just check up to make sure they're actually as competent as you were kind of hoping they were if that thing's going to be critical to your whole plan um, and one of the things that Washington uh, never really had a lot of access to was a significant uh, source of uh, engineers cartographers uh, staff officers you know he had guys like Alexander Hamilton uh, you know, who before he was, was uh, doing his hit Broadway musical was aide-de-camp to Washington. And Washington had this sort of cadre of um, young, well-educated college men that served as his aides-de-camp throughout the war. And, and he wanted those because, you know, an aide-de-camp in this time period is sort of your general purpose, sort of administrative assistant to a general, but also at times could have to represent you personally. So that if, if you need to send an order, um, that's fairly complicated or you don't have time to write it down, like you could send this person that understood the intent behind the order mm -hmm. that could answer these questions. And it has to be somebody that is uh, composed enough to, to, as only you know, a lieutenant colonel, stand up to someone that's a general and say, well, that's great, but I represent the higher ranking. And to not exceed your authority in that right either, but to, to hit that mark. Um, and so it was really always hard for Washington to find men like that, and, 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 and so Washington really valued them. One thing he never really had access to, because you could find well-spoken college-educated men in the colonies, right? Like a graduate from Harvard or Yale or William and Mary, or, or, or uh, at the time it's King's College, right? But Columbia, um, Princeton, like those, those places exist. What they don't have, though, is people that do military cartography. It's a very specialized subfield, and it's something that uh, you know, anyone that wanted to move up in the ranks of a European army was always practicing. And, and as in the 18th century, they're starting to establish some military academies. You know, it's something that's increasingly being taught there, but, you know, that hasn't happened mm -hmm. in the colonies, right? Like West Point's not going to become a thing until 1803. Mm -hmm. And so it's just not, it's just, they, they, it, it doesn't exist mm -hmm. in America at this point. And um, the French will, as early as 1776, uh, when the Americans officially declare independence, start to um, surreptitiously send over military engineers and military cartographers. Um, you know, guys like Thaddeus, or Kazusko comes sort of over on his own, but uh, guys like William Duportal and some of the, these other French officers. Um, and, and, and it's weird because a, a lot of Americans I don't, th don't think realize just how much that was actually the French behind the, the French government behind it, because you know the French government can't admit they're doing it because they're not officially at war yet. Because if they do it and the British find out, then the British will get mad and declare war, and the French aren't ready for that. And so, you know, they're sending these guys over secretly. And even to this day, I don't think a lot of people realize. Like I think the French almost did too good of a job in some ways because I, I think they're not getting some credit for some of the these efforts. But so they'll try and send over some engineers and some cartographers, and and. They're, they're great as sort of like a stopgap, mm -hmm. but there's never sort of enough of them to go around. Um, and you can generally find, you know, if you look at like sort of the broad history of the war effort from 1775 until, you know, really 1780, if you ever want to look at like where the Americans are losing, it's generally where there aren't cartographers and engineers because the, they just, they bring so much, uh, they're, they're such a force multiplier for helping a general understand what's going on because they can yeah. create the maps to, to help them sort of visualize a big well, picture. Well, and because prior to the war, 
commercial maps was pretty much all that was available and those came out of London and so yeah yeah your supply kind of yeah it's stops yeah it's weird you know because we can um, you know not with 100% exactness but it it's it's sort of fun there's times when if you you can see like even when Washington is sort of operating in a new area or like here's a guy that's traveled through New Jersey but he's never had to worry about the inner details of like what exit to get off at on the parkway <laughs> um, you know if Washington wants to, try, if he, when he's trying to create like detailed march orders for where he wants the army to go, you can actually look at the commercially available maps and see, okay, this is probably the map he had because these are these are the marks that he's you know telling them to go to, and it's not all. And then he'll you know get information from a local New Jersey and it's like, well, you know, there was like a shortcut you could have taken, um, but yeah, all of these maps were produced in London. You know, you did. There was no you know the the. The mercantilist system of the British is that finished goods are produced mm -hmm. in back in London, and so uh, you know f even something you know we think of as simple as a map, the sort of skills and the information it takes to to put together some major map like that, and and the printing presses required to print off large scale commercial maps don't don't exist in the colonies, um, and so if you happen to go to war with England and you're trying to buy these things from London, it becomes harder to go shopping for Much them. It's more difficult, yeah. Uh, you know, you could maybe try and pick some up in Paris, but you know, then you gotta you gotta speak French, and it, you know, it just doesn't quite work um, the same way. So it made those that skill set even more valuable. Yeah, you know, um, in in uh, in 1781, you know, everyone sort of thinks of the Yorktown campaign as the big moment of 1781. But the two armies, uh, the French army, has been up in Newport, Rhode Island, since July of 1780, just kind of hanging out with the Rhode Islanders, having dinners and parties, and um, enjoying the food. The American army has been camped up by West Point throughout that winter. Um, they can't do any offensive operations because Congress has run out of money. Uh, but by 1781, there's a fresh uh, influx of cash from. Uh, from Louis XVI, who graciously gives like chestfuls of silver, which happened to make it easier to conduct large-scale military operations, um, and so Washington then can finally start to plan some sort of offensive activity. The question is whether to go to New York or to attack New York, where they're basically already at the, the Americans and the French are already sort of in the neighborhood, or do you do you actually go down to the Chesapeake, where uh, the British have been running around Virginia, causing havoc? Uh, they've already threatened Washington's house, and you know there's a guy named Benedict Arnold down there in Virginia that's really embarrassing George Washington. Washington like to get his hands on him. Um, so the French and American armies link up in um, June of at the end of June of 1781, and you know there's a whole discussion of are we will we won't we uh, attack New York? Uh, and sort of the traditional narrative, if you read most books about the Yorktown campaign. Uh, is actually based off of a poorly translated version of Rochambeau's memoirs that Rochambeau writes in like 1807, where Rochambeau, or I should say where the translator implies that Rochambeau implies that he sort of tricks Washington into going down to New York, and that's just, or going down to uh, Yorktown, and that's just not the case. Mm -hmm. We know uh, by looking at Washington's own writings that in mid-July he he's already considering this idea of moving his entire army 450 miles down to Yorktown. I mean, that's not something you just do when you get a note from DeGrasse saying, hey, I'm going down to Virginia Beach. Do you want to join me um, you know, for a party on the, on the sand? Right? Like, you don't just move an army 450 miles right. in a day. You know, this is something they had to have been planning. And um, 
part of what convinces Washington that the attack on New York isn't going to work is those French cartographic skills. Um, the two armies, when they link up, will do what's called a reconnaissance in force. They'll actually take about uh, half of each army, about 8,000 men total, actually march uh, almost right to around where Yankee Stadium is now, demonstrate in front of the British, and by that I mean like all line up and get the British to shoot at them. Uh, the British at this point are all ensconced in various little fortifications in northern Manhattan, um, where it gets really hilly. And uh, the whole point of all of this is for both armies to just keep the British's attention while Washington, Rochambeau, and their team of cartographers ride around drawing maps. And, and I mean literally drawing, right? Because that's they, yeah. they have to do that, they have to do it all by hand. And so uh, the surveyors uh, and, and the cartographers for both armies will go out while um, you know, the armies are, are distracting the British for two straight days. Um, we'll go out, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll map everything on Long Island, we'll map all of northern Manhattan, we'll, we'll map portions of the Bronx. Uh, because remember, Washington hasn't seen these things since 1776, when they get run out of New York. Uh, Washington actually writes in his own diary, uh, and it's sort of interesting from like an environmental history perspective, uh, he writes uh, sort of a note to himself in his own diary of this, that northern Manhattan looks so strange because whereas before there used to be giant stands of trees, now there's not even bushes uh, as high as a man's waist because you've had you know four or five thousand British and Hessian soldiers camped in northern Manhattan for four years, five years at this point. You know they've been you know they had to use wood to build the forts, they had to use wood to heat fires in winter, um, and so all of northern Manhattan is is geography has changed because of this human occupation for so long. Wow. Um, and so you know, they do this reconnaissance in force. They, they make all these rough sketches. Uh, and then both armies retreat back to the Dobbs Ferry area. And that's when their cartographers really go to work. And they start turning out all of these beautiful handmade maps. Again, there's no printing press yeah. to, to reproduce these. They all have to be reproduced by hand. And they all have to be exact enough uh, that, and, and, and um, uh, accurate. accurate enough uh, that they can exchange these maps because Washington needs a version, Rochambeau needs a version. Uh, if there's any chance of the French fleet, you know, that will never have seen any of New York before in its life, uh, they're going to. The French fleet would, in theory, show up completely sight unseen. They need a map that has, you know, they have to decide common names for everything. Um, so these maps uh, that are actually in the Library of Congress, some of them are in the Library of Congress. Yeah, some, some of them are actually in the Library of Congress uh, in the Rochambeau map collection. And so they had to actually decide whether they were going to use the French name for something or the English name for something. Uh, and generally they went with whichever one was easiest for both sides to say, right? You had to, you know, this is a multinational army. Yeah. And so the cartographers are having to think through all of these issues. Uh, and by the time it's all done, the maps will actually allow the staff officers to come up with this massive 26-page, you know, handwritten report of okay, if we're going to attack New York City, this is what it's going to cost in terms of troops, and this is what it's going to cost in terms of food and supplies, and you know, this is how long we think it's going to take. Mm -hmm. And you know, even as they're generating this report, we know that Washington is already starting to ask people, what's the weather like in Philadelphia, and what's the situation with the roads, and uh, you know, if I was going to happen to do something to take, you know, a trip down to Virginia with a bunch of my friends, how would I go about doing that? 
because um, it's not something that can be done overnight, but it's something that without, um, you know, because Washington wants New York back. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, he got, he got run out of there unceremoniously. Uh, he, he really, it's, it's embarrassing. Uh, New York is the major base for the British in, in what's, you know, in, in the American colonies that are rebelling. You know, if he, that would be the big, uh, I don't, it's a podcast, so I assume it's your big, sexy victory <laughs> to get would be to actually get the retribution of reconquering New York. And he really wants to, and I, and I, I, I think it, it's those French maps and, and that staff officer work that really convinces him, as much as I want this, it's not the right decision. And without those maps, it becomes much harder to visualize just how hard of a challenge it would have been to attack um, right. the city of New York. And so that's when they'll decide, okay, we're going to Virginia, um, and we can stop at my place on the way and have, have some snacks. <laughs> so, I mean, they played a huge role in the entire war, really, all throughout. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting that, you know, the, the West Point will not be established until, uh, uh, until the Jefferson administration, mostly because Jefferson doesn't want to, Jefferson and, and his political party don't want to pay for it when the Federalists are in charge. But then once Jefferson actually gets to, to be president, he decides, oh, maybe we kind of do need that. Um, but, you know, I, it, it's, it's uh, not a coincidence at all that uh, from the start, West Point's curriculum was a military engineering and military cartography intensive curriculum. They realized they needed those skills. Yeah, I mean it's it's that thing that they cannot reproduce. You know, even if you're going to even if you know, even the most uh, you know, sort of Repu Jeffersonian Republican uh, you know, pro militia as the bulwark of defense of the nation type realized but you're still going to have certain positions like artillery, like uh, cartography, like engineering that that just takes time and investment and training mm -hmm. that you cannot um, you can't just catch up with that quickly. Right. Uh, and so that's why, uh, you know, from the start, it always says, we're, I, I taught at West Point for two years, and the cadets now are always fascinated when you talk about this, that drawing was a required course at West Point originally. Wow. Uh, and there's these great, they're actually in the special collections collection, in the special collections library uh, at West Point um, of William Tecumseh Sherman's drawings that he did as a student. And it's these uh, very ripped, muscular Greek men in the nude, which is fascinating. Um, but you think about, like, if you can draw abs, you can draw a hill, which is actually what they were, you know, training these guys to draw was hills and stuff. But what they would have them do was, figure you know, drawing. classical yeah. figure drawing, because if you can figure out the contours of the human body from sight, you can figure out the contours of a hill. Uh, and, you know, and these don't have to be big elaborate maps, it can be a sketch, right? Because these are, this is still a time period, whether, I mean, even it's into the American Civil War, it, it's still, it, it, it's conducting war by passing notes and by, you know, and oftentimes by even rough sketches. And the better your sketches can be, you know, the better chance you have for success and the better, um, you know, the more troops you can bring home, which is ultimately, you know, the goal of any military officer. And so the cartographic angle was essential to uh, American victory in the war, and then is you know an essential part of the American defense policy after the war. I mean, it's you know one of the first deficiencies they moved to create correct is um, making sure there are armories so that the U.S. doesn't need to import guns from Europe because if you know you're most likely going to be going to war with Europe, so you know they're not going to sell you stuff. 
uh, and, and establishing you know, cartography and engineering schools uh, in the United States. It, you know, it's the first two things that uh, sort of national defense movement the U.S. looks to correct. And then as far as Washington's life, he kept up his surveying skills throughout his life, right? Um, yeah, no, he, he, uh, he, he always, I mean, he was, doing a sur he was doing some personal surveying of Mount Vernon even uh, a few weeks before he died. You know, it was something he enjoyed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we can see from uh, the surveys he does. It's, it's funny, you, you don't see Washington in his writing ever really doing a lot of sort of embellishment. He's, he's very matter-of-fact in, in anything he writes. Um, but if you look at his surveys, uh, you see sort of little extra flourishes on the compass roses and stuff like that. And he really, I think, sort of thought of it as, you know, he's a very practical guy, so you know, it's, it's, compass rose still has to be accurate. But it's, 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 you can see his mapping is, is you know, his, his one little like, artistic release that he would ever sort of allow himself uh, would be in his, um, his maps. And, it, you know, and again, you know, the, uh, I, I wouldn't want to work for him. Um, Personally, though, I, I think all of us at Mount Vernon kind of work for him now, but I'm glad that he's not my direct supervisor. Um, because he, he takes a personal interest in the surveying of the federal city and how they're going to lay out Washington, D.C., right? I mean, he, he's going to live right near it, even after he retires, so he's kind of interested and he wants it done right, but it's, it's going to have his name on it, so he kind of want it done right. But, you know, he's, he's even sort of checking on the surveys that are done to lay out Washington, D.C., because um, he's always, you know... Well, trust but verify. Yeah, trust but verify. You know, he's finally learned that lesson. Um, but yeah, he, he just always had a lifelong um, you know, fascination with maps and, and with surveying. And you know, it's, it's one of our, um, our disappointments here at the library um, that as much as... So when Washington dies, um, there's a survey done of his, uh, his library, I should say inventory, um, done of his library because they have to they have to disentangle the Washington and the Custis estates because there's no direct heir um, for George and Martha, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we have this great inventory of the books that were in Washington's library. Um, unfortunately, when they did the inventory for maps, they just said map collection. Oh. So we we don't have a great idea of we know we had a lot of maps. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, we don't have a great idea of is what maps they were. Um, but we know, you know, like I said, he was always a very practical reader. You know, so his library collection, uh, military art and science, uh, political theory, surveying, uh, agriculture, right? Like all the sort of, you know, things he's going to, um, he was not a big guy of reading fiction. Um, but he did, he did like to read um, like travel logs or, or sort of discussion, like stuff that you would read like in a geography class. Mm -hmm today, right? That's not just about like the maps, but also sort of culture understanding, yeah, the culture behind the, or the organization. So, you know, I, th I think in some ways like geography was sort of his, his leisure reading, which is, you can tell about how much he relaxed, right? But, um, so I think he always had a lifelong interest with maps. Uh, you know, certainly in the mansion today, we still have his globe right there where you can um, see it, uh, you know, but, I th you know, it, cartography is what helped him sort of make his way in life from the start, and I think it's something he always had a lifelong fascination with. Thanks to Joe for giving us a glimpse of George Washington's life and legacy. Washington accomplished a lot in his lifetime, 
But his interest in land surveying, cartography, and geography are perhaps the things we are most appreciative of here at NGA. As honorary employee number one, we honor the legacy of George Washington and the road he paved for Jewett over 200 years ago. Thanks for joining NGA for another episode of our podcast, Geo Interesting. We love it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And this is one case where an intelligence agency wants you to spread the word. Tell a friend about Geo Interesting. Look for us on your preferred podcasting platform or on YouTube, or read a transcript of this episode at nga.mil. This episode's music is courtesy of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. The men and women of the Corps proudly carry on traditions that accompanied the birth of our nation. We think George Washington would approve. <laughs>